You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Kerr. Hey, beautiful friend. I hope you're having a wonderful day. So I cannot say enough how excited I am about our guest today, Lori Williams. She is amazing. Um, I'm going to say it when I'm on the interview with her, but I cannot recommend her program enough. I had some students who were talking to me about remote viewing, and so I took her class, and it is highly recommended. She is one of the most interesting people I've ever had on this show, in my opinion. So that's why this interview is very long. I think you're going to love it. Before we do that, we will settle in for our little breathing exercise, and then I'll have some transitional music, and we will get right into my talk with Lori Williams. Welcome to this moment of relaxation. So wherever you're at, whether you're sitting, whether you're in movement, go ahead and take a moment now to focus on your breathing and take a deep and healing breath in through your nose, breathing in love and joy and peace and light and exhaling any tensions or concerns.
Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I am super excited to have Lori Williams with us today. You know, I interview a lot of different guests. I get to read their books, but I've actually taken Lori's classes in controlled remote viewing. In my mind, she is the world's expert in training people how to do the art of controlled remote viewing. And she's an excellent teacher, highly recommended. And when I sit around thinking about the people I most want to meet, Lori, you're at the top of the list. So welcome to Healing Arts. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. This Thank is so you. So I think your classes are fantastic. And I was wondering if you could share with the audience how you first were introduced to control remote viewing and how you got into the work that you're doing now. You know, it was a, a funny kind of journey, Shelley, because initially, you know, as a little kid, um, apparently, according to my mother, I died as a baby. I, I had some kind of a strange seizure and then I stopped breathing and, you know, I turned blue and and uh, somehow they managed to get me to a hospital and I got revived, but uh, I have no memory of it. I was probably, you know, 18 months old or something. But um, interestingly, I had been on this journey to try to reconcile really unusual supernatural events my entire life with my then belief system. And I say then belief system because remote viewing has actually changed my belief system significantly. It's really broadened my God box, but um, I really was on this journey to try to find this. And I was reading a book by a pediatrician who had done a 20 year study of children who had clinically died and been revived. Um, and he had like a control group and he had, he had four groups altogether, but only one of the groups were kids who had clinically died. And most of those kids had reported, you know, seeing a tunnel and seeing a light and all these things. But following these kids for 20 years, he discovered that um, these kids who had clinically died had a really high degree of psychic ability. And then when I read his definition of, of a normal person, psychic ability, I was like really shocked because according to this book, um, normal is one verifiable psychic experience per lifetime. And that was a huge wake up call for me because I thought if that's normal, I'm definitely not normal. <laughs> I think up until then I thought I was, but um, that was really shocking for me. And at the time I read that, I was actually in Denver, Colorado, attending a conference on post-traumatic stress disorder. I was the head, I had just taken a job as the head of a refugee resettlement program. So I was resettling refugees from all over the world. And the first thing they did was send me to this conference. And the man who was the speaker, the main speaker, was a retired colonel from US military. And I thought, oh, how unusual. I just met a colonel. In my very first colonel, I met like three days ago. And so I'm thinking, how weird that you, know, you never meet a colonel your whole life. I was 39 years old, never met anybody from the military other than my dad, who had spent four years in the army you know, during World War II. But um, I was like, this is really strange. I mean, two colonels in like three days. And that night I dreamt that I was asking this colonel at the conference if he, I was telling him that I had met this colonel in Amarillo. And the next day I get to the conference early and I'm standing outside the ballroom doors and this colonel is standing outside the ballroom doors and we're just the two of us alone, you know, standing there waiting for them to unlock these doors and let us in. And I just looked at him and I said, I had a dream about you last night. And he said, really? And, you know, he was kind of shocked. And 
I, and then it made me think of my mother who always used to say, if you want a man to remember you, tell him you had a dream about him. And so I was like, okay, this guy, I've just told him I had a dream about him. So anyway, I told him that I had dreamt that I was asking him about this colonel in Amarillo. And he said, well, what branch of the military is this colonel that you just met in? And I actually did not know it, but the colonel I had just met was actually assigned to me by the CIA because they were letting Kurds into the country for the first time. And so they, they get this retired colonel that had been in the CIA most of his career and said, we want you to keep an eye on this lady because she's in Amarillo and you live in Amarillo. And so he immediately contacted me under the guise of being um, a church member that wanted to help refugees, which is funny because we had approached that church, the, the program had approached that church many, many times asking for help with the refugees and they always refused. And suddenly they were all gung-ho to help us with the refugees. And this guy looked he looked like a James Bond. I mean, he was like really had perfect posture, black hair, and just, I don't know, he really had the James Bond thing going on. And so um, I, a few weeks later, I ended up going to Washington and meeting some of the White House security folks and telling them about this guy. And they said, yes, he's been assigned to you. And they confirmed that. But anyway, so I, I, when I told this colonel at the conference that this guy I thought was in military intelligence, he said, oh, that's interesting because I was in military intelligence. And right as he said that, the cover of a new book that had just come out that I had seen on the new arrival shelf at the bookstore just kind of flashed in my mind. And uh, I went, oh my gosh, have you seen that new book? <laughs> just one of those things that you blurt out and then later say, did I say that with my out loud voice? Uh, and he said, what, what new book? And I said, it, it's turquoise and black on the cover and it has something to do with psychics in the military. And he said, are you talking about Psychic Warrior by Dave Morehouse? And I was like, that's the book. And he said, I can't believe you're asking me about that book because I was a major character in that book. And uh, he turned out he was the psychologist that would screen the guys going into the Stargate unit, the, the psychic spying unit for the US military. And so, that was, and he said, so I, I made, I made Dave change my name because I didn't want my name in the book. So anyway, he starts getting really excited and leaning in and now the doors are open and people are filing past and he's leaning towards me and he's saying, wow, do you have a photographic memory for numbers? Do you remember maps easily? Are you artistic? And he's just asking me all these questions that I'm kind of backing away, feeling a little nervous. And as I finally am getting away, he says, wait, wait, when you get home, go on the internet, which was very new right then. And the program had just been declassified a few months earlier. And uh, he said, go on the internet and look up controlled remote viewing. And so I had to remember that it was three words, controlled remote viewing. And so when I got home, I did, I went on the internet and I looked it up, I typed it in Google and it pulled up this, this webpage that said, what is CRV? And it, that was Lynn Buchanan's website. Lynn Buchanan had been a trainer in the Stargate unit. So with great trepidation, because I had been fully warned, you are not supposed to email people you meet on the internet. I, I, I was a lot more fearful back in those days, you know, but I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna email this man. And I emailed him and I said, do you think I could learn this? You know, and he wrote back the most gracious, loving letter that was so sweet and so kind. And it turned out I was going to have to travel just a few days later to Maryland. And that's where he lived, was in Maryland. I was going to have to travel to Maryland and I got stuck there for several days over the weekend and I couldn't get home. 
So since I was stuck anyway, I decided I would call him. That was even scarier. So I dialed the number and the sweetest voice answered just this kindly, you know, gentle, grandfatherly sounding voice, you know, picked up the phone and I explained who I was. And he said, yes, come visit us. Come, come tomorrow. And the next day was Sunday. And I thought, and I think he was 80 miles from the hotel. So he, he faxed me a little map how to get to his house. And I went down to the lobby and I picked up the Hertz phone and I thought, okay, God, if I can get a car for $24.99 tomorrow morning, I'll know that I'm supposed to do this. And sure enough, they said, we have a car for $24.99 if you want one. So that was my, <laughs> please excuse me. That was my sign. And so I, uh, I drove, I got horribly lost. I think it took me several hours to go the 80 miles, but I finally found the house and had a wonderful conversation with Lynn Buchanan. And I found out many years later because Lynn and his wife, Linda, both became dear, dear friends and really like almost like second parents to me. And uh, I found out years later when Lynn was telling the story of how we met to some students who had asked him and we were at a dinner and they said, how did you meet Lori? And he told the whole story exactly as I remembered it up until I left his house. And then he said, my wife turned to me and said, Lynn, you've got to stop inviting these crazy people to our house. <laughs> he said, and I said, oh, why did, why did you think I was crazy? And she said, well, we both thought you were 25. She said, you looked really young and you were talking about your grandbaby and your seven children. And we thought she has to have screws. She has to have some imaginary family. <laughs> so, because uh, I am the mother of seven natural children that I gave birth to and two beautiful stepdaughters. And now we have 22 grandkids. We had oh but I one at that point. I became a grandmother at 37. And so um, I was 39 when I met Lynn. And, and I guess I looked younger than 39 somehow. So, uh, and so anyway, it was, it was really, you still look 39 to me. So I can see where Lynn's wife would have been like, this lady is off the rocker. So I'm, I'm turning 66 in June. So, no. Yeah. Wow. I have a great, a two-year-old great-granddaughter now. And so um, that is incredible. You're amazing. That yeah. is such a story. I mean, wow. Talk about meant to be right. Yes. It was, it was quite uh, astounding for me. I did know that it was definitely meant to be. My then husband um, and I, we didn't have the greatest marriage, uh, which is why we're not married anymore. But at that point, um, I was really kind of scared to tell him that I was checking all this weird stuff out, you know. And uh, and so I signed up. I wanted to sign up for Lynn's class that he was going to be teaching. I mean, he was going to teach a, a three-day course on remote viewing in San Antonio, Texas, and we were in Amarillo. And so I, I finally found a way to talk to my husband about it. And he actually got very excited by it, excuse me. And he thought, wow, this is great. So we took that class in San Antonio together and we're, I was just so, I was almost shaking with excitement because I just couldn't believe how amazing this was. And I felt like this is what I've been looking for my whole life. I mean, this is it. <clears throat> and I was really, you know, as I, I told you that Lynn thought I was 25. Well, I thought he and his wife were in their 80s and we were actually in their 50s at the time. And it just wasn't, it wasn't because they looked old. It was because I think the younger you are, the older people who are older than you look, 
because I mean, you know, I, when I was still in my forties. I would have little 16 year old girls at the cash register offering me the senior discount, you know, when I was like, 40. <laughs> so I was like, the younger you are, the older people look to you. And then Lynn and I now we're, you know, we're dear, dear friends. His wife passed away sadly a couple of years ago, but he and I are still dear friends. He's 84 and we talk now we joke. And he was like, man, some psychics we are, we, you know, I thought you were 25. You thought I was, <laughs> we weren't very good judges of age. That was for sure. <laughs> so, that is amazing. That was that whole experience though. I knew that it was a big shift in my life, you know, that this was where I was turning a corner and that this would always be a part of my life ever since. And they had just declassified the program in 1995. And I met Lynn in 1996, took my first basic class with him in San Antonio in April of 1997. And it was very hard to wait because, you know, it was months that I had to wait before I could take the class. And I was so excited by it. And, and back then, there weren't a lot of books out there. I mean, Dave Morehouse came out with that book. Um, and there was a book called Mind Trek by Joe McMonagle. But that was about it. That was it. Those were the two books we had. And we also had a, a book that had just come out called um, America's Psychic Spies, or you no, know, it was called Remote Viewers, The History of America's Psychic Spies by Jim Schnabel. And uh, I read that, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on. I was just really eager. And one day uh, my then husband said, hey, why don't, why don't we try it? Why don't we try remote viewing? And I said, but we haven't taken a class. We don't know how to do it. He said, well, I'm just going to lay on the bed and close my eyes. And I'm just going to tell you what I see. And you write it down. And I said, okay. So he lays on the bed. He goes, I'm going to go visit Michael. So one of our seven children's name is Michael. And at that time, Michael was in California San Diego, I believe, getting ready to go to China and do missionary work in China. So he goes, I'm going to see what Michael's doing. So he closes his eyes and he says, I see Michael sitting in front of a computer and he's real nervous. He keeps looking over his shoulder and he keeps, you know, he's very nervous. And, and uh, so I write down everything and I send it to Michael. I emailed it to Michael. And I said, at this date, on this time, at this time you were doing X, Y, Z. And I knew that Michael didn't have a computer. So whenever he wanted to check email, he had to go uh, several miles to a friend's house and get on their, their computer to check his email. So a few days later, I get an email back from Michael. And he said, at first, when I read what, you, what, what he said, I, I thought, no way, I don't even have a computer. How can I be sitting in front of a computer? He said, then I looked at the date and the time, and I realized that I was in Kinko's. And we had asked the manager of Kinko's if, we, if he would donate an hour on the computer to create a newsletter that we wanted to send out. And we had reached the end of the hour and I kept looking over my shoulder, the manager, to see if he was getting angry or getting ready to kick us out. And that was, that was what he was doing. So I thought, that's so cool. You know, he remote viewed what Michael was doing. So he said, I want to try. I'm going to try to remote view what Dustin's doing. So we have a son named Dustin, who at that time was in Florida, stationed at Cape Canaveral in the Coast Guard. So I lay on the bed and I'm trying to tune into Dustin. And I said, I see Dustin in a gigantic room with a bunch of men and they're all carrying huge white boxes. And so I write to Dustin and I say, hey, at this date, on this time, at this time, I saw you in a big room with a bunch of men carrying huge white boxes. And he wrote back immediately because he did have access to, uh, to email. And he says, Jesus, mom. He says, I was in a warehouse with a bunch of guys and we were moving washing machines. <laughs> and so, and so wow. those two 
experiences really set the stage for us to get into CRV because we thought, man, if we could do this without even knowing what we're doing, what could we do if we had training? You know, we could, and we really aimed at the target. You know, you're really aiming at the target as opposed to just shooting willy nilly into the air. I think most, yeah, I think most people have experiences, you know, that just spontaneously occur occasionally, like where you think of someone and the phone rings and they're calling you or, you know, those kinds of things happen to a lot of people. And I say, wow, what if you could control that ability though and do it on demand? How would that affect your career? How would that affect your relationships? How would that affect your finances? You know, how would that affect your life if you could actually control that? Absolutely. So do you think most of your students, are they looking to get into the government psychic, psychic spy or is it more like you said, just for daily life and the benefits that you could receive? I've never had a student that did it because they wanted to work for the government or, you know, as a psychic spy. But in fact, I think generally speaking, to be honest, most people nowadays are kind of suspicious of the government. I mean, they feel a little insecure and they don't necessarily want to do anything for the government. And I've turned down many opportunities to view for the government. Um, so it's just, it's not anything I've ever felt comfortable with either. So uh, now, now, interestingly, you know, I had the CEO of Sony in Australia who came and took my course way back, like in, I don't know, 2004, 2005. And uh, I asked him, I said, are you taking this course like strategic planning, corporate strategic planning. And he said, oh no, I'm taking it because I really want to understand what happened to me. I had a near-death experience and I just want to understand what happened. And that was the first vacation he had taken in years, just coming all the way to Amarillo, Texas, you know, to uh, to study CRV with me. Um, and he and I are still friends to this day. Um, he's no longer the CEO of Sony. He left a few years ago to, to go back to his own business. But um, but it was real interesting for me to see the people that come and take this course because we have high level uh, people of all different walks of life who take it. Um, we have doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, we have, you know, computer programmers, scientists, engineers, just, you know, just a plethora of high level people. And a lot of them, I kind of, scene where I've kind of got two groups of people. I have people who take it because they've already kind of accomplished a lot of their goals and dreams in life. And that, and now they're like wanting to really explore that spiritual side of themselves, you know, that they've never really taken time for maybe that to see what can, what's my potential here Do, you know, I think a lot of people no longer question does psychic ability exists? Is it a real thing or is it fake? Every now and then I run into a skeptic or you know, a naysayer who says, that's just, you know, BS, that doesn't even, isn't even real. But when, when the U.S. government discovered that the Russians were getting a lot of our military secrets and a man defected from Russia with documents showing that Russia had a psychic spying program and that that's how they were getting our secrets, then the um, U.S. government said, holy cow, we better do something to combat this. So they went to Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, California, and they hired these two physicists who had helped to pioneer the laser. <clears throat> you know, so these were not fly-by-night guys. These are people who had the intelligence 
to pioneer the laser. Think of all everything we use the laser for nowadays, you know? And so these guys, they said, can you figure this out? So these guys started researching and they, they hired first a man who was a retired detective from Burbank, California, whose name was Pat Price. And then they hired this psychic artist from New York, whose name was Ingo Swan. Let me turn off my, put my email so it stops dinging. And they, they, with these two men, they would put them in Faraday cages to protect them from EMF waves so that nothing could get to them while they were remote viewing. And they would send someone out somewhere, you know, a few miles away, and they would say, hey, you know, Bill, we've got Bill at some location. See if you can close your eyes and tune in to where Bill is and see if you can sketch what you see. So that was how they started, where they would have um, these people go out to these different locations and then the psychics would close their eyes and try to sketch it. And they, they found that they were uncanny in their success. Um, and they, they also tried, they, then there was a big scuttlebutt because at one point, they, uh, the government, I think one of the generals asked a colonel, <clears throat> just pick something randomly, a location, and, and have these two guys, see if these two guys can remote view it. So they said, oh, okay. So this guy was like, okay, I'll just, he thought to himself, I'll just pick my hunting cabin in the woods. I have a hunting cabin in the woods. Unbeknownst to him, really close and just below the hunting cabin was an underground military facility that was like top, top secret. But he didn't know that. So he gives them his hunting cabin as a, to view without them knowing it. He just says, okay, I've chosen a location. I want you to remote view it. So these two guys find themselves in this underground military place. And they go into this one office and they stuck their heads into the filing cabinets, and they copied down all the words that were on the, the files. And they all had to do with billiards, you know, like cue ball and, and eight ball and things like that. And they were code names for these ultra top secret projects. So here you write down these code names to top secret projects in their paperwork, and they give it to the colonel who looks at it and goes, oh, this stuff doesn't work at all. They didn't come close to remote viewing my hunting cabin. But he has to send it up the chain to get back to the general. The general sees it and freaks out because they just completely blew the lid on these top secret, this top secret project. That causes a huge investigation. Were these two men who claimed to be psychics, were they, were they working for the Russians? You know, did, were they double agents? And they, they checked their bank accounts, they checked everything they owned. They did a huge investigation. Couldn't find any evidence that they were spies or, at all. And then they were like, oh no, if they're not spies, then what that means is that this thing really works and we're in trouble because I mean, that means there's no secrets. So that's where things really got serious. And that's when they decided that they were going to open an application arm of this because Palo Alto, California was the research arm. SRI was the research arm. They thought, well, we'll open an applications unit and we'll put soldiers in this unit on the East Coast at Fort Meade, Maryland, in these condemned buildings that were abandoned. They put the guys in there. They had to walk through chest high weeds to get to work every day. And so um, these, the first guy they put in the unit was Mel Riley, Melvin Riley, who had demonstrated some psychic ability. And he was the only soldier who was in two tours of duty there. He was the only guy who did two separate tours of duty within that psychic unit. 
but Mal became a dear friend of mine, um, very close friend and mentor. And he died in, um, in April of 2021, I believe, in April of 2021. So we lost Mal then, but he mm. was such an amazing guy and shared so many of his experiences with me that I'm, I'm so honored to have been his friend. But one of the things that, that came out of all of that research was that the U.S. government obtained more solid proof that psychic ability is real than the FDA has proving that aspirin is effective as a pain reliever. So, you know, if the, for people who say, no, nah, that stuff's not, you know, not real, it's very real. It's, um, and it's, it's been proven time and time again. And so now you fast forward to what I'm doing. And um, in my work, I, I really felt compelled that I was supposed to teach this. I come from a long line of teachers and professors, and I was just like, I am supposed to do, this is my life's work. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I worked with Lynn very intensely. And when I completed the advanced course, I, uh, two years after I completed the advanced course, I got in touch with him and said, I feel like I'm supposed to teach this, but I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'd love to teach your course. And he, and he had had a lot of people ask him if they could teach his course. And he said, no, absolutely not. So with me, he said, well, I tell you what, if you come to every class I teach until I decide you're ready, then I'll let you teach my course. And I think he, well, you know, he's thinking she has seven kids. She's got a crazy full-time job that's 24 seven. She's not gonna be able to drive six hours. By this time he had moved to Alamogordo, New Mexico. And it was a six hour drive from Amarillo. So I'm, I'm, he's thinking she's not gonna drive six hours to my house and six hours home. She's not gonna be able to do that every other week because that's when he was teaching every other week at the time. And so every other weekend I climbed in the car and I drove there. And I did that for like two years, just going and studying with him and helping him teach. I didn't really help him teach that much. I mostly helped him when they, we would go into doing sessions. I would help the students and go around to the tables, you know, and assist in that way. And uh, finally, at some point, he said, okay, you're ready. I'm, I think it was in around 2000. He said, I'm going to start having to teach a few classes. And so he would send some students to my house and I would teach them. And then um, in 2002, he said, okay, now I'm going to have you teach all the basic classes in the United States for me. And I'm, you know, I'll teach the intermediate and the advanced, but you teach the basics. So I actually ended up working for Lynn until 2010. And in 2010, his wife was like, I'm, I, she was starting to have some serious health issues. And she ran the business from the, you know, like the tax stuff and the, all the things you have to have for a business. And all I have, how I had to do all those years was just open my door every month and teach whoever walked in. You know, that was very easy. Um, but uh, when she said, you're going to have to, to go on your own because I just can't manage the paperwork anymore. So then I, that was January 1st of, of 2010 was when, I was on my own teaching all the classes and all the courses. And um, I thought to myself, you know, if you have something wonderful that you really want to share with the world, it's not like they're going to beat a path to your door just because you have something wonderful if they don't know it's there. So I knew then that I had to start studying marketing. I, you know, if I really wanted to let people know this and, uh, and that, so I ended up, you know, joining some marketing groups and, and uh, attending a lot of conferences and things. But it made a huge difference because it was the only way I could really let people know. And I discovered that so many people who've never 
thought about it in their lives. They've just never thought about psychic stuff. It's just not been on their radar. Those people, when they find out this exists, they're amazed and they really want to be, they really want to dive in and get, get into it and learn it. Um, and that was a big aha for me because I always thought, no, you just have to approach, you know, people who are into this sort of thing. And I found out not at all. This is so grounded and so it has so much science backing it that it does attract people who've never thought about anything woo-woo in their lives, you know. So uh, I, I felt like Henry Ford said, if I asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> you know, if, if you don't know something exists, you might not know you need it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I have to say, yeah, your, um, your website, intuitivespecialists.com, kids, the link is below. It is amazing. And the whole way you put people through the program, you offer the introduction, which is very substantial and incredible. And then people who want to continue move on into paid courses. And you do an excellent job of communicating. I mean, it's fantastic. So you must have learned a lot during your marketing studies. It's outstanding. Well, thanks. When I actually bucked the crowd and the standard teachings when I put out that free course because uh, the free course is a four-part course. And I told, um, I had a guy that I had hired to help me with some of the marketing stuff. And he's like, well, you know, if you're going to put something free out, just put like a PDF or a 15-minute video. And I said, no. I'm going to put out a full course, a full four-part course that teaches people how to do the basics of remote viewing. And he said, why would you do that? That's like too much. And I said, no, because for people to experience this without having to pay for it is what's, the, the, that's going to cause the people who really know this is meant for them to know that, that, that it really is, that they have an, a knack for it or whatever. And that's what's going to draw them into wanting to learn it because they'll have actually experienced it without having to pay any money for it. That was really important for me. And, uh, and I've always felt like if you give people something of value and you give it to them for free, and it's truly something worth having rather than some piece of junk that you don't care about, um, people then when they experience it, not only do they have big revelations about themselves, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I get letters every day from people going, I just took the free masterclass. I can't believe I just did that. Um, you know, I can't believe how well I did and how, how, how accurate I was, but also um, they think if she's giving this away, what is her paid stuff like? <laughs> you know, if she's willing to give something like this away, then what is the, what the, what is the full course? And, uh, and, and for me, you know, for all the ladies out there who have battled an uphill battle in a in a man's world. And I'm not at all a man hater at all. I mean, I love men and I, I have a wonderful husband and we are very happy, happily married. But for me, this was really an uphill battle in a man's world because, you know, it was a military thing and all the military guys that were out there that had been in the unit, they were all men. And so I felt very much like I was climbing this hill, you know, where I didn't get no respect for a long time, you know. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like you worked in the military and you're not a man. And so I kind of was, was um, going up this hill and I tried hiring a filmographer and I said, can you film my classes? Because I want to put out some classes. This was before the free course, before everything. And that fell through. I paid the guy. He filmed for a while and then couldn't ever edit anything. He, he could film, but he couldn't edit. 
that was, and back then I knew nothing about anything, right? So you never, you don't know what you don't know. And then I, I hired another filmographer who really had a great track record for, you know, making movies and things and paid a substantial amount of money. And then that one at two years later, I still didn't have a product. And I realized if I'm, that I was using the fact that, that I paid this guy and that he was, and, and the guy was really trying to get it done, but he, he had a million other things happen in his life that kind of kept him from getting it done. And he had never made a course before. So he didn't really know how to edit it. And he was struggling and a lot of his equipment was breaking and he got married and then he had a baby and then his dad died. You know, it was just one thing after another, after another. And I thought if I'm ever, I'm using this as an excuse to procrastinate. And if I really want to do this, I've got to do it myself. So I bought a course on how to set up lighting if you want to video something. And I, and then I went on YouTube to learn how to do editing on iMovie. And I ended up making my first three courses just by myself, handling the lighting, the editing, the everything, the scripts, the, I didn't do any scripts. Actually, I, I didn't want to use like a teleprompter. I just wanted to talk and teach right to the camera but anyway so all so the courses so far have all been you know if anybody looks at them and says hmm, they're not exactly perfect when it comes to you know the, the the quality of the editing and everything they're clear you can hear me you can see me but but done is better than perfect that's what I had to learn that is absolutely right, because if you sit around thinking about it, you're not actually doing it. And I love your videos. I think they're fantastic. Oh, thank you. And anyway, it's also it's the content, though. I mean, you can tell you are passionate about it, but you're actually giving people something that's real. And as you said, that feeling of going, oh, my gosh, I just did this. What's up? I mean, that's a great feeling to give to people. That's my passion is for, because when I see people transforming, even my husband, uh, who is a retired forensic scientist, um, he, when, when I would teach at home back when he was still working, uh, and, and I was still working and I would teach on the weekends. And a lot of times he would, he would stay home all weekend and he would hear this class over and over and over, you know, the, he, cause most of my classes at back then were basic classes and he had heard the basic class, you know, till he was blue in the face. And I said, why, why do you stick around? Like you could go do something fun, you know, you don't have to say. He said, I just love that moment when they just have that. He calls, I don't think I'm allowed to say it on a podcast, but he called it the holy SHIT moment. And, yeah. and he's like, he said, they, they see what they just did. And he said, and then when they leave, they're walking three feet above the floor because they're just floating out the door practically. They're so excited. And, and he said, I just love seeing that. I just, every, every time you teach, it's, that's, that's what I stick around for. Yeah, I teach energy healing. And the first time somebody senses like other people's energy field, they go, oh, you know, it's got to be similar. And there's nothing else like that in the world. That's so true. There's nothing else like it. And it's a thrill as a teacher, you know, when, when students are just like so over the moon with their own accomplishments and so excited. That's just, for me, that's the reward right there. And the funny thing is, is that as I was, you know, once I was out on my own, I was like, okay, what did I really wish I, what do I really wish I had back when I was learning this? What would have helped me make progress faster? And every time I thought about it and I came up with an answer, then I would try to create that for my students. My vision was to have a school that was the most complete holistic school available for remote viewing. And I noticed, the first thing I noticed was that most of the opportunities for learning out there 
take you up to a point, but only to a point. And, and then uh, that you can't really go beyond that. So I thought, well, I want my school to teach people from beginner, you know, rank beginner right off the street to professional levels. I want, you know, like you don't, if you're going to go to Harvard, you want to get a degree. You want to walk out of Harvard with a degree that's going to help you get a job or whatever, right? That's the idea. Right. And whereas if you go to a community college and you, you know, you, you can only go for two years, then, then you know that that's what you're getting when you go to a community college. So I thought, no, I want to, I want to be sure that whatever I offer has a plethora of a real buffet of courses that are com very complete where they can take the full spectrum of everything. For example, at the end of this month, uh, May 31st, I'm teaching a project management and operations course, um, you know, which, because once you've taken all these courses and you're really, really a great remote viewer, then what? You know, how do you get jobs? How do you start remote viewing professionally? And if you have stuff that you would love to re have remote viewed, how do you manage a team of remote viewers? You know, and how do you how do you do all that? People need to learn how to be able to do that. And it makes you a better remote viewer too if you learn how to manage a project. You you see other people's work and you go, oh, next time I do a session, I'm gonna make sure to do this other thing, or you know, I'm gonna make sure I I'm, I clearly spell out X, Y, Z or whatever. You, you see that and you go, okay, that's how I'm gonna change things. And then I also thought when you go home from taking your very first three-day, let's say you take a three-day course um, in person or through Zoom or whatever, and it's a live course and you go home, a lot of times you're like, okay, what do I do now? What do I start? How do I do my first practice session on my own? And uh, so I thought, People need mentoring when they get home. They need somebody to hold their hand when they get home and they're no longer in the classroom. So I created in 2013, I created what I called the mentoring club that is now called Club PRB, which PRB standing for practical remote viewing. So now anybody who takes my courses, they can be in the club. And in the club, we meet you know, several times a month and there's extra, and, and then I eventually had to create levels in the club, basic, intermediate, advanced, professional, yeah. um, and a healing group. Yeah. So we have five levels in Club PRB so that the students always have uh, camaraderie, other students who are also learning this. Um, we have a, our own private forum that's not Facebook-based. It's, it's a forum that's built on a Kajabi platform. And, and in this forum, you know, people can ask questions and meet each other. And we have different groups for like, you know, here's a group that if you want to CRV buddy, here's where you find your CRV buddy. Because we now have students all over the world, you know, in practical yeah. country. So you can always find a buddy to work with. And so I wanted the mentoring club. I wanted them to have mentoring and the ability to connect with other students and really create a community. And then I was like, okay, what else are we missing? What else would I have liked to add? And I realized, oh, you know, it's once they reach a certain point, and they've taken all the courses, um, you know, th there's nothing there. You know, we have to have something there. Um, and so I thought, well, what if we create a three-year path to professionalism? Wow. You know, where, where you could have a coach, a professional remote viewer coach who works with you for an hour a week you know, so that you really are honing your skills fast. And so we created this three-year, we call it CRB Pro. 
and it's uh, it's the the it's the path to professionalism. So once a student has gone through all three years, then they graduate, and then we're and right now we're completely redoing the website and we're going we're creating a page for the graduates of this program. We're going to have our first three year graduates in February of 2024. That'll be our wow. first coming out on the other end, and uh, we're going to have a page you know that highlights them because I get so many requests. For remote viewers you know hey could you have a remote viewer who could help with this problem or that issue and uh, so we want a page that highlights people who have gone through this program and graduated and are very adept and able to help them so that you know you're choosing someone who has ethics and integrity and a you know a high level of skill or they wouldn't be on that page so so that we'll, so we'll, cool yeah, and we'll feature them on the page and that was all part of just creating a very holistic school that offers everything I could possibly imagine for remote view, for aspiring remote viewers. It is really absolutely incredible. Um, I Links are below. Everybody needs to go check this out. Any of you who have ever, even in your wildest imaginings, thought about, I want to know what CRV is. You need to go check Lori out. It's amazing. And you work with your husband, Jim, and you've also got some books out. Tell us about the books. I'll have the links below, but was it one of them about the, the person who has to monitor, right? It's about mo the monitor. So tell us about that. I thought that was super interesting as well. Well, the, um, the most important book for people who are not familiar with CRV would be the book called Boundless, Your How-To Guide to Practical Remote Viewing. That's your how-to book, and it takes you through the first eight hours of a three-day workshop that I teach. Um, we also have that same course available as a video course. So we now have basic and intermediate as a video course, in addition to the introductory course that's free. Um, and hopefully this summer, the plan is for me to film the advanced course and the associative remote viewing course. So eventually, I want all my courses to be available on video, because I'm not going to live forever. So we need to have these courses available as a video option. But, um, but anyway, so the book, Boundless, will give you really the full, 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 bleh, full first eight hours of instruction from my three-day workshop. And then, um, and I'm working, I'm about halfway through the Boundless 2, which will uh, cover like the next eight hours of the course. Um, so those are the books. And then I, I wrote a book called Monitoring. The first book I ever wrote was called Monitoring because so many of my students wanted to work together and they found statistically keeping data in the unit that remote viewing sessions that are monitored do have a higher level of accuracy than a non-monitored course, I mean, a non-monitored session. And so one of the problems is everybody's like, well, what, how, what does a monitor do? How do you monitor? And Jim became such an excellent monitor. I mean, a world-class monitor. I mean, he's such a good monitor that they, uh, there was, we were paid for a project and he was flown with the viewers to a location where we were going to all be working on this project together. And he was the monitor for the whole group. He did the monitoring. And he's just an excellent monitor. And I think it's because he's a very quiet, introverted kind of guy. He's more observant than talkative people like me, <laughs> you know, I'm a real talker as you see, but uh, Jim's very quiet and he really notices nuances in body movements and facial expressions and voice intonation as it changes. Um, so he makes a 
I'm, I'm an excellent monitor. And I had been giving, creating all these little tiny documents that I was giving to my students all the time. Like, well, here's some of my tips on monitoring, you know, and here's some more tips on monitoring. Here's some more tips on monitoring. And then Jim came along and said, well, you should also make sure they know this and this and this and this. And I was like, oh yeah, here's the, the great monitor. I should, and, you know, have a lot of his stuff included. And then one day my stepdaughter, um, Gail said, Lori, this is a book. You have all these things. This is a book. Put them together and put it put it as a book. And so I did. And Mel Riley uh, read it and, and gave me some added things to make sure I add in there uh, for what we call ERV monitoring, extended remote viewing monitoring. Extended remote viewing is a type of remote viewing that is done kind of in a hypnagogic state. Mm. And so the monitor for those sessions needs to have a bit more skills than a monitor for a CRV session. CRV, this viewer is sitting at a table with paper and pen, writing and talking out loud as they write, eyes open, very awake, very conscious. Um, and it's kind of a play, an interplay between conscious and subconscious mind and right and left brain. So this is all based on brain science. And, um, and so CRV, again, is kind of the granddaddy of everything in that it, <clears throat> I like to look at it as a basket that holds any other methods in it. You can include other methods with it, but it's, it's a reporting technology really, where the conscious mind is interviewing the subconscious mind, getting information. And then the conscious mind, of course, which also controls the body is writing everything down on paper, like a reporter as the subconscious is gathering the information and sending it to the conscious mind. Wow, that is so interesting. Do you think that's how some of these channelers work who speak with um, other beings and things? Uh, well, yes, I do. I'm sure it's, it, they don't necessarily use a written structure like CRV is a written structure that gives you a, a great way to record the information you're getting. Whereas I think most channelers, unless they are doing um, automatic writing, for example, you know, um, uh, most channelers is like think about Edgar Casey for example. Most right. people are familiar with who Edgar Casey was, and Edgar Casey had his helper who took notes and took dictation, and she wrote down everything that he said when he was in trance. And so, if you think about her, I can't remember her name right off the uh, top of my head, but um, she Gladys. What was it? Yeah, Gladys. Gladys Davis. Yeah. Yes, Gladys Davis. Gladys wrote everything down. She was really Edgar Casey's monitor. Yes. Put it that way. Gladys was his monitor. She kept him safe. She took notes of everything he said. And uh, she was the record keeper, which is an extremely important job when you think about it. I mean, what would have, what would have happened if there had been no Gladys? <clears throat> you know, if, if none of his things had gotten recorded, what would have happened? Right. It would have just been lost to time. Everything. So that's a, that's a great analogy, but you're exactly right. I hadn't thought of it that way. So interesting and amazing. So um, what is next for you? You're just continuing to expand. You're finishing the book and expanding the filming of the advanced levels. Yes. I, uh, what's next is to film um, in, uh, the advanced and the uh, associative remote viewing course. Those are our next two projects. Uh, I do need to finish the next book. Um, my hope is that eventually I could have a book on all the different levels. There's six different levels of CRV. 
and we call them phases. Um, some groups call them stages, the, but there's six of them. And so to write either one book on each stage or possibly depending on, on how, I don't want the book to be over for any book to be over 40,000 words, because if you have a how-to book that's over 40,000 words, nobody reads it. Right. <laughs> so if it's a how-to book, it needs to be less than 40,000 words. And so that's about the size of an average paperback. Um, yeah. And uh, I also have recorded Boundless as an audiobook. And the only things that's kept me from publishing it yet is that uh, Audible came back and said, you don't have a proper introduction and closing. And they have very specific guidelines as to how that must be. I thought I had an introduction and a closing, but they're like, no, it has to be these under these guidelines. So I have to record those and then add them to the Audible and then we can publish it. And that's the only reason I haven't published it yet. But seems like there's always something like Gilda Radner used to say it's always something <laughs> absolutely you are very very busy I'm so glad you are I love your work um everybody out there check this out it is an amazing class you can see this is an amazing teacher highly recommended Lori I just wish you and Jim continued happiness and success in everything you're doing and thanks for doing it we love it thank you so much for having me on Shelly really appreciate it and i'll be sure and put this out to all the i think we have eighty thousand people on our mailing list now so we'll be sure and let them know this is here so they can watch it if they like and uh i'm so glad that i got to be here with you that would be fantastic oh no what happened oh i didn't mean to turn off my camera oh, sorry about you that. see your picture oh that's okay <laughs> she looks just like her picture all right laura your joy this has been a, a treat and a thrill to meet you i love your work so i will continue to dig into all of this and i hope that all of my friends out here will as well i hope so too and i hope i get to see you in cloud prv because then i might get to work with you face to face yes yes are you still in the amarillo area no no now we live in the mountains of new mexico oh We're how wonderful New Mexico. And um, we we were drawn here because we found a property that had three earth ships on it. Are you familiar with earth ships? Yes. With the yes, I am. Walls built by, you know, that were, well, they were designed by Michael Reynolds, who was the inventor of earth ships, but they were built by a woman, an amazing woman named Joe Sage, who just passed away at the end of December. And she was just a few days shy of 90, but she built the three earth ships on our property. And wow, uh, when she was 60. And if anyone knows about our ships, they are very labor intensive. And she built these beautiful, three beautiful homes. And since we have nine, you know, nine kids, 22 grandkids, we thought, well, we need a big property with a lot of earthships if we like earthships. So for six years, Jim and I lived off grid in the earthships. And only just recently, we, we added a little, another 40 acres to our 80 acres um, that they, they're actually joined at the corners. And, um, and we put a regular house on the 40 acres um, just to have a home to age out in because uh, Jim's having a few mobility issues now in his old age. And we realized, well, if we're gonna, if we really wanna live here and we wanna age out here, we need a, a geezer friendly home. Jim calls it the geezer friendly house. <laughs> we had a guy do, you remember, um, do you remember Dennis Weaver? Yes, Dennis Weaver, yes. He had an earth ship in Colorado and him and I were, I, I don't even think I've ever told any of this audience this before, but we spoke at a conference that was being run by a friend of mine in uh, mid-Texas years and years ago. And he was telling us all about his earth ship. That was absolutely amazing. It was, I got to be, you know, he ended up with two earth ships, Dennis Weaver. Oh. He, but the first one that he had built was up on this mountain outside of Taos. 
And then he decided to build the great big one in Colorado that he ended up with. But I got to tour the one in outside of Taos. Ah. We found this property with the Earthships. I told Jim, we had just finished remodeling our house in Amarillo, which was a seven bedroom, four bathroom, three living room home. And we'd spent four years remodeling it. And when we finally got it done, we had found out about Earthships and really fell in love with them and then found this property. And I said, if we're going to move from this beautiful home now that we've remodeled to go live in a kind of a mud hut, (laughs) I'm hearing the theme song to Green Acres, you know, in my mind. Um, I was like, I, I, you know, we tend to fear that which we don't understand, right? So I told him, I'm kind of scared of that. I don't know if I have the, the, the wherewithal to do that. So what I did was I went for a month. I took off the month of October in 2016, and I attended the Earthship Academy. And when you attend the Earthship Academy, you live on the premises for a month. And every other day, the, the, the school runs six days a week for four weeks. And then you get Sunday off to do your laundry and buy some groceries, <laughs> but you're living in Earthship. <clears throat> and every other day you're in a classroom and the days in between you're out on, on, on an Earthship build and you're actually building an Earthship and they move you around during the month. So you're getting to have experiences in all the different stages of the build. You know, sometimes you're working on electricity, sometimes you're working on the water, uh, the water pro- systems in the house. Other times you're pounding tires. Sometimes you're helping build the roof. And so I did that for a month so that I would really feel familiar and comfortable with the whole Earthship concept and not be scared of living in an Earthship. Wow. So these are all subterranean, correct? And you're using recycled materials or no? They're not subterranean. They're built on on top of the ground. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah, they're built on top of the ground. So you, you lay out the tires that are, you know, you lay out the first layer and there, and it goes on three sides the north side, the east side, and the west side. And then, then you pound those tires till they're bulging. And then you do another layer and you do keep doing that. And they're, they're stacked like bricks. And then you do that till they're 12 layers high. And then, uh, and then you cover them and you make the walls and everything. And then the front of the house, which faces true south is glass, completely glass. And now they build them with double glass. So they're like a glass hallway, which becomes a greenhouse. So you can grow food in your house. Um, And the cool thing is in the back of the houses, now ours don't have this because they were built before they invented these. But now what they do is they build a berm up on the north side of the house and they put big cooling tubes through that berm. That's why people think they're subterranean because of the berm. But the berm is actually above ground. Um, It's up below. And so then, then you put these big tubes through that berm and then the tubes come into the house and they're covered with screen and then doors so that in the winter time they're sealed but in the summer you open those up and it and what happens is you open up the the ceiling in the in the um the ceiling of the greenhouse has like doors and you open those and it gets very hot in the summer in those between those two glass walls right so hot air rises then it pulls in the cool air through the berm which lowers the temperature of the air to 65 degrees so air conditioning that's completely run by convection has no motors no air conditioners no machines but it keeps the house at 73 degrees through the summer wow that is amazing no it's really amazing we've been amazed even these that don't have the cooling tubes 
my bedroom, it, the hottest day we ever recorded in the six years was 105 degrees. And it never gets that hot here. It's usually like 85 here. We're way up in the mountains, but there was a heat wave that went through and it was 105 degrees. And my, the hottest my bedroom got was 76 during that heat wave. Yay. That's with no air conditioning. And in the winter, the cold, do you remember when Austin froze a few years Oh, ago? yes. Yes. I'm in the Dallas area. So yes. Yes. So when, when Texas cold wave, the cold wave went through here too, and it got down to minus five here. And so we deliberately didn't light a fire in there because we do have a, um, we have a fireplace and we also have a, a like a potbelly stove type thing. Um, it's not potbelly, it has glass in the front, but it's a heating stove. And we deliberately did not put any heating sources on because we wanted to see what the coldest the earthship would get in the biggest room with the glass walls. Yeah. And the coldest it got was 55. That's the lowest the temperature went was 55 in, inside the airship. And our bedroom, the coldest it got was like 62. And so, wow. you know, I mean, they're very thermal, amazingly thermal and very, you know, Michael Reynolds' vision was buildings should protect the occupants. They should protect their occupants and they should also be very earth friendly and use up garbage. So yeah. essentially are garbage houses. <laughs> they have cans in the walls, they have bottles, we, you know, red, old bottles. And, uh, and then they have the tires in, inside the walls. And tires are becoming a huge problem. I and mean, they've been a big problem for a long yeah. time. Old tires. Um, so, you know, we need to be building with tires so that we can get rid of them. And people say, oh, but what about off-gassing? But they're so deep in the walls. And also by the time they're being used, they've already off-gassed everything they're gonna off-gas. So the, the off-gassing is not an issue at all. Uh, but anyway, so we love, I'm very enthusiastic about earthships. <laughs> you can tell. Wow, it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that is an, an incredible way to live. And we do need to just be using these things that we already have here. So I'm glad to see that this is get, getting more and more popular for sure. Yes, the idea of living in, I think in, in our area, there's at least 14 off-grid homes that are some sort of alternative homes. Some are the, uh, the rammed earth homes. Some are straw bale homes and some are earth ships. Um, but uh, yeah, there's 14 of those homes surrounding us here. In that is so cool. So amazing. Wow. So fascinating to talk to you. I'd love to have you come out and see them if you like earth yeah. ships. Oh, I would love to see it. I'm, I'm originally from Albuquerque, so I've got oh all my, my family there. So I'll be coming through there at some point. So oh, yeah, next time you visit your family, just let us know. We're just 90 minutes away. Oh my gosh, that would be a thrill. That would be a thrill. I would I would have loved to have seen. Dennis was talking about the one that he lived in in Colorado. I just was under the impression that it was part subterranean, but I think it's because of what you were describing. But he was talking about the same thing, the consistency of temperature, and it just sounds like a dream. You know, the one in Colorado, I, what they did, I think, was they kind of built, it, it's, it's two-story. So oh. they, they made it kind of like that. I don't, I don't know if that shows through on the camera, but they have, you know, lower story and the higher story. So a lot of times when they do that, they, they do kind of cut into the earth and then have it come up so that you've got the earth already around the lower part. Yeah. So they're going to do a two story. That's so interesting. It's, um, it's good that people are continuing to research, um, you know, these alternative ways, because I think we need to move into the direction where we're all doing this basically, as you know. That's why we ended up becoming so fascinated with it was because we were getting very concerned about the state of the planet and 
having 22 grandkids, I'm like, well, are they going to have a planet to live on? Or are there, are, will their children, you know, will they be able to have children who have children who have children? Or is, are things to the point now where that's not even going to be a possibility? Now I was just really, and then I thought, well, Jim and I thought, well, what if, you know, two old people, <laughs> I'm going to be 66, Jim's 71. We're like, what if we leave our luxurious home that we just finished remodeling and we move into a nurseship? What would that say to the children and the grandchildren? Well, the first thing was a call, I got a call from one of my kids who said, mom, you're not going all doomsday prepper on me, are you? <laughs> As a matter of fact, you are. No. <laughs> Really, you know, we weren't, we, we don't live in fear or anything. We just mainly wanted to experience the lifestyle of living off grid and feel like we were living in a situation that was more friendly to the earth, you know? So, and the modern earth ships now are just like normal houses. I mean, you, you really would, I mean, you have every convenience. They have plenty of electricity. They're off grid and you can grow your own food in them and you collect your own water from the rain. But, but still there, they, you know, if you walk into them, there you you have washer dryer microwave you know regular fridge and toaster and everything ours are a little older ones and they don't have ton, I mean, their electrical systems are not as strong and the woman who built them really wanted um to use a bucket system for plumbing so it looks normal but then you open under the like the cupboard under the sink and there's a bucket or when you take a shower water goes into a bucket so you're really aware of how much water you're using we live in the desert mm -hmm. and so we were you know it, we i got to where i could take a shower in less than a gallon of water you know use less than a gallon to shower even when my hair was long i could do that um but it's you know it's it's really important that we're aware of the resources we use absolutely and yeah nothing like being able to see it there to realize what you're consuming for sure that's important to bring conscious awareness into subconscious actions Yes, when I would wash dishes at night, because, you know, my, my mother called, she said, what kind of dishwasher do you have? And I looked at Jim and I said, well, he's about five, seven. <laughs> <laughs> a really good one. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we would wash dishes and, you know, and then you, you'd have to keep an eye on that bucket because, you, you know, when you used up five gallons of water, that bucket's going to overflow. So, uh, you know, and then a bucket, a five gallon bucket of water weighs 40 pounds. And it's funny because I sent a letter to my list and, you know, you can always tell how many people open a letter when you send an email. And I think the letter that got the most opens, the subject line was Jim busted his gizzard. <laughs> hey, that's, I, a, that's a good one. He, he, Jim would always say, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to bust my gizzard. It was kind of a saying that Jim always had, but then he did. And he ended up having to have a hernia surgery because he was lugging these buckets everywhere, you know, always oh, no. love in buckets and he ended up having to have a hernia surgery which was his fourth hernia surgery mm. <laughs> the doctor rather hernia prone <laughs> something you don't ever want to hear but no. uh, anyway but yeah so many things came up that uh, with with um he had broken his leg really badly as a kid and now that he's 71 his foot won't lift up anymore from that break oh, no. his leg and they had to reattach his foot when he broke it so and when he was 17 and so now that foot just won't lift. And so that creates a trip hazard when you're living in a home that has flagstone floors, you know, and flagstone steps outside. It's gorgeous, but it was, and we go there every day. We still go there because we have a greenhouse out there and we work on the greenhouse and things. And we, and then airships need to be maintained. And Jim still 
is still very ambulatory. And so he loves going out there and taking care of everything out there. But, um, but as far as living there, you know, till we're 90, it just didn't feel like maybe we could do that, uh, you know, so, but we kept them because our kids love them. They come and they just feel like it's this, the most wonderful grounding place to get away from the corporate world, you know, because all of our kids now are in their 40s and they, except for my youngest, our youngest, but the rest of them are all in their 40s. So it's like, it's a great place to ground and get away from big corporate jobs that, you know, keep you real busy. Yeah. And the action of what you're doing, showing them other ways to live. I mean, that's just really awesome. Yeah, the children, the grandchildren too, they just love it. I mean, imagine uh, the, the land opens into the Sibylla National Forest. And so they go, they, they, they find arrowheads and pottery and they, not in the forest, but on our land, they find arrowheads and pottery and they, they just go, they can run all over the place. You know, there's just so much to see and do. And, and, and kids need that nowadays. You know, they, they do that chance to get away from the screens, from their yeah. iPads and iPhones and, and uh, things, you know, and get outside and play. Yeah, and your grandkids are the ones who are going to be inventing all of these new technologies. So you know, <laughs> they'll be able to make even better Earth ships than the ones you have probably at some point. Oh, yeah. Oh, there are much better Earth ships than the ones we have nowadays. Even if you ever, if anybody on, that's listening ever is interested in checking out Earth ships, you can go on YouTube and type Earth ship into the search bar and you'll pull up a ton of videos where they people are talking about the earthships and showing how to build them and um the team that that works for mike reynolds at, at earthship biotexture they go all over the world helping uh hurricane stricken areas and earthquake stricken areas and showing the people how to build out of garbage uh, immediately and how to even create uh, potable water tanks from rain a lot of these things happen like in haiti and puerto rico where they get tons of rain but people will die from bad water you know mm -hmm. after, after a catastrophe like that after a disaster whereas they don't have to they could immediately put up a home that would just take a few days for them to build i mean it's, it would be small but that has a bathroom uh you know that's completely flushing toilets and and uh and then potable water um, which is a, such a key thing. And they teach them how to build it all out of garbage and mud, you know, which is amazing. And that is so fantastic. that was our goal was let's live in a way that our grandkids can come visit and go, wow, look at how, you know, look at how we could live because we, you know, down the road, things are going to get hairier on this planet. And so if, if the children can see that sort of lifestyle now, hopefully it'll, it'll live in their minds and they can then remember that when they're big enough to start building their own things. Yeah, we do have to reimagine um, the way we're doing many things. The tiny house craze was a big one. I didn't realize Earthships was quite this big, but you know, everybody's getting a tiny house. Wow, you know, that's great too, because it's not taking up as much space. A tiny Earthship, that sounds like the ultimate. Yeah, we have those three Earthships we have. One of them is 1,400 square feet. And the oh, other two are 825 square feet each. But the thing about that is that's the footprint on the outside, but the walls are very thick. So the interiors are not as big as that. The interiors are probably more like five, five or 600 square feet and 100 ones. And same I think thing. that sounds perfect though. I mean, what do people need, right? We don't need all of this rambling, huge stuff. I don't it's think so. 
It's so true. The only reason we had that big house in Amarillo was because we were using it as a training center for CRV. So students would actually come and stay there while they were studying with me. Um, and we held several summits there. And that was our vision. Of course, prior to me teaching, it was when we had our children. We had at different times, we had lots and lots of kids in that house. <laughs> you know, our seven. Then for a long time, we had the um, we had our nieces and nephews living with us too. So at any given time, we had at least 11 children in that house. So you need a big house for a big family. Uh, but once it was just Jim and me taking care of, you know, having these classes and things, that was a huge amount of work to keep up. It's like having a huge, it's like running a big B&B, you know, bread and breakfast. Yeah. Um, so now we just have Earthships. <laughs> that sounds great. Fantastic. Well, Lori, it has been a joy to connect with you, and I just wish you and Jim continued success. Thanks so much, Shelley, and I hope your podcast is a big success. Well, thank you so much. It's been a joy to, to do it. So, friends, uh, check out Lori's website. You'll have the links below, and I'll see you next time on Healing Arts. Bye, guys. That was so much fun. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. I didn't realize we were going to get to talk about earth ships. I mean, that's incredible. So we are going to do our little breathing exercise. And then I'm going to say goodbye to you right now. I hope you have a beautiful week. I hope everything is going right in your world. And I will look forward to our next time together next week on Healing Arts. about to end our time together, imagine that you can take another deep and healing breath in through your nose, breathing in love and joy and peace and happiness and harmony, and exhaling love and joy and peace and happiness and harmony. And imagine that every single cell in your entire being is filling with love and light and joy and happiness as you continue to breathe through your nose, filling with peace and love and exhaling peace and love. And imagine that peaceful, loving feeling just pours out of your heart center creating that beautiful golden bubble of light that surrounds you by about three feet in all directions. Feel the loving vibrations of this healing light and just know that you can be within the light now and always as you go about your day, peaceful and relaxed, energized and refreshed. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. Namaste. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at Past Life Lady or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady.